There was something in my head that knew there was something not right. My blood went cold. It was like being hit by a bus. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Jemima Forrester. At the age of 18, Jemima met the man she would later marry. But after a fairy tale wedding just a few years later, the relationship she had thought was for life hit the rocks. Despite several attempts to save her marriage, Jemima found herself with the most challenging of dilemmas to prioritise the vows she'd made or her own happiness. This is Jemima's story in her own words. My name's Jemima Forrester and nobody told me I'd be married and divorced by 30. I was 16 and we were working together in a pizza restaurant in the town where I grew up. He was the manager in the restaurant where I worked as a waitress, so I think, you know, I looked up to him anyway. He had a very cheeky smile, a cheeky sense of humour, quite flirty. I just always got on really well with him, I really liked him. He must have moved on to another job after six months or a year, and I didn't see him probably for a year, but a friend I was still working with who'd stayed in touch with him reintroduced us after that year when he had broken up with his girlfriend. I remember actually, I think we were once sort of cleaning the tables and she said, oh, this guy, you know, that we used to work with, him and his ex have broken up. And I remember thinking, oh, really? All right. She's like, yeah, he's, we're going for drinks with him next week. Why don't you come? It was the two of us and this, this friend of mine and her boyfriend. We went for drinks and we just ended up spending the whole night chatting. And he was talking to me about music and I was pretending I was really into like I don't know, heavy metal or something to impress him. (laughs) And I did not know anything about heavy metal music and I still don't. You know, I was was 18. I had never been in a serious relationship before. I wasn't kind of expecting anything. I was just, it was a guy that I liked on a night out and, you know, he asked my number and I hoped he'd ask me out. But if you told me back then that, you know, that was the man I was going to marry, I'd have laughed in your face and said, no way, who meets their future husband at 18? I don't think it was so much of a dream to get married and have a big white wedding as an expectation that that was what was going to happen in my life. I think if you look at films and books, even if I looked at the examples around me, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, you know, I just saw people got married and they stayed together for the rest of their lives. That was it was something I thought would just happen for me. I think we went to like another Italian restaurant like a ZZ's or an Ask or something like that. It was so easy to talk to him. He was so funny and easygoing and relaxed. Then we went and met his friends in this comedy club and we had a really fun night out and he drove me back and gave me a little kiss in the car. And then he invited me on another date. And it just, there was no point where I thought, is is this going to be anything serious? What is this? It just happened. And I think the ease that it happened was was testament to how good we were together in those days. His ex-girlfriend, they'd been together for four years and she had cheated on him actually repeatedly. And he said to me, 
early on in our relationship, within the first few months, I think, when he was telling me about his experiences with his ex, that that was his line that couldn't be crossed. Infidelity, he'd been hurt in the past and he wasn't willing to do it again. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's absolutely fair enough. But I was just always aware of that throughout our relationship, that that was his deal breaker and that there would be no coming back if I did anything like that. When I went to university in Birmingham, two or three hours away, then it became less easy to spend time together, I suppose. And he had to come and visit me in my hall, in my like, university halls and share a tiny single bed. And I do remember one visit, he said goodbye. And I, I remember sitting in the window of my, of my university halls and watching him walk away and I sobbed. I was so devastated. And I think that was the, the point that I knew I, I really loved him. We were so happy. I never once questioned that we would end up together forever. We were together for six years before we got engaged, so we definitely talked about one day when we get married, when we have kids, you know, that sort of hypothetical future planning you do when you're in a serious relationship. I think I'd started a new job or, I can't remember, I was, very, I was working very hard and I was quite stressed. And he said to me, let's take a holiday in March. Just go to the Lake District and do some walking. We'll get a cottage, we'll cook, we'll have a fire, it'll be lovely. And on the, the, the weekend we were going, it was like blizzard weather. It was snowing, it was freezing cold. And the next day we set out and it wasn't snowing and we managed to go on a really nice walk and the sun was, the sun was shining. And we sort of sat down in this quite, quite picturesque spot by a, by a lake, as you find in the Lake District, and got out our sandwiches. And he was being really odd and really sort of, I don't know, on edge. And I was eating a sandwich and then I was like, right, let's go. And I cracked my hand warmers and started putting on my gloves. And then he got down on one knee. I didn't hesitate for a second when he asked me. I thought, of course, I want to spend the rest of my life with this man. Of course, we're going to be together forever. I did plan the wedding of my dreams and the wedding that you think about when you're a little girl. The big white wedding, the dress, the guests, the flowers, the beautiful day. It was a lovely country wedding and my dress was, was strapless. It, was, it had a very like big lace applique detail on it and I had a, a floor length veil. It was the dream wedding dress and I looked like a princess. I'm not deeply religious and neither was my ex-husband, but it meant a lot to me that we stood up in a church in front of a hundred or so of our most loved friends and family and promised to spend the rest of our lives with each other and to stick with each other in sickness and in health and through good times and bad times. And, you know, when I was planning this big white wedding of perfection and inviting everybody and making a big deal about it. Nobody told me that I'd be divorced by the time I was 30. When we got back from honeymoon, we had the excitement of living together for the first time and, and setting up a home and, and we were doing up the garden. Uh, you know, we were doing those sort of setting up home things that were, that were still exciting and fun and new for us. And I remember saying six months in, I feel really different. I didn't think I would feel this different. I feel more deeply committed. It's just more serious. And that was amplified by the fact that I was only 
25 when we got married and I was very young. About a year and a half or so into our marriage, we both started new jobs that were very demanding of our time. My ex-husband still worked in the restaurant industry. He was working long, long antisocial hours. We were both quite stressed and we were spending less time together because of that. And when we were together, we were bickering more, we were fighting more. It wasn't unusual for him to come back at 1am anyway after working, but he was coming back at 3am, 4am. He was coming back extremely drunk. It was starting to happen maybe once every three or four weeks that he wouldn't come back until 7am and I didn't know where he was and he wouldn't tell me, he wouldn't let me know. And I was up all night worrying about him. He'd be so apologetic, he'd say he didn't mean to do it, he didn't mean to worry me, he didn't mean to scare me. He would never do it again. Then we'd have a few weeks where everything was fine and then he'd do it again. We were living in Shepherd's Bush at the time. I remember walking around Shepherd's Bush in my pyjamas, seeing if he would, he'd like passed out drunk in a doorway somewhere because he was drinking so much and I was so worried about him and I'd be calling and calling his phone and it would be going to voicemail. I remember those nights. And then he'd come back at 7am and I'd have to go to work and I hadn't slept and it was, Honestly, a really, really hard, hard six months or so that went on for. I remember going out for lunch with two of my really close friends and saying, he's coming back late, he's coming back drunk, I don't know where he is, he switches off his phone, there's something going on. And I remember saying, I know he wouldn't cheat on me, I 100% trust him, that is not something he would do, but I just don't know what it is. I look back now and I think, wow, I just, I trusted him so implicitly. A couple of months after that, having that conversation with my friends, we were both on holiday with my family down in Kent, where we go every year for a week or two with my parents and my sisters and my nephews. And we were a few days into this holiday. And one day he was cooking with uh, my brothers-in-law and I went into the bedroom and his phone was lying on the bed. And now I look back and I think he, he was being a bit weird about his phone in the months before that. Sort of when I'd say, oh, can I use your phone to do this? He wouldn't let me or he'd say, oh, I'll do it for you. There was something in my head that knew there was something not right. I picked up his phone and I knew his passcode and I opened his WhatsApp and I saw uh, a woman's name at the top and I opened it and I knew the second I opened that message, I knew what I'd found. I saw some references to, to missing, missing, I miss you. I saw some heart emojis and my blood went cold. I, it was like being hit by a bus. He looked like a scared little boy when I confronted him. He said, it was nothing, it, 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 it's a woman at work. We shouldn't be messaging each other like this, but it doesn't mean anything. She's, she fancies me. Uh, I, I know I should have shut it down, but it was totally innocent. And I was shaking, but again, self-preservation mode kicks in. We were with my family. I didn't want to let on that anything was wrong. I didn't know exactly what was wrong at that point. So we just carried on. We went and sat down and had dinner with my, with my parents, with my siblings, and pretended like there was nothing wrong. 
And it was later that night after we'd all gone to bed and I said, did you sleep with her? He'd maintained it was just messages and then he said he had. And I said to him, well, I don't want our marriage to end because you made a stupid mistake. So I kept his phone, we carried on the rest of that holiday. We were there for another two or three days with my parents and I just pretended everything was fine. You know, it started off, it was just messages. Then I found out that actually he'd slept with her. Then I found out that it had gone on for six months. And then we got some counselling together a few weeks after we got back from holiday. And he said in this counselling session that he loved her. So it was this very gradual realisation of how serious this betrayal was. Every time I found something out, he would say... I'm so sorry, I don't want to hurt you, I love you, I want to be married to you. Every single time I found something out. This was a a period of about six months where he basically kept going back to her in in odd ways. I remember at one point he started messaging her again and he saved her number under a different name in his phone. But I was so... I remember my anxiety levels were absolutely off the scale at that point. I wanted to know where he was all the time. I wanted access to his phone. I wanted access to his social media. I was checking his Facebook every two hours or something to see who he's contacting with. I'd made him block her on everything. And you just can't, you can't control things like this. And I tried really hard to. And yeah, he was just saying to me that he wanted to be with me, that he loved me, that he didn't want to lose me, that I was the most important person in his life, that he'd made a huge mistake. And then he'd go back to her. And I think to this day, he was in love with two women and he didn't know how to deal with it. I think it was weirdly Facebook. He'd he'd unblocked her on Facebook again and I found out and he'd changed his password. And I just, I was like, what are we doing? I can't do this anymore. I need space, I need time. I didn't know that we'd be able to get back what we had, but I also wasn't ready to say this is the end. He moved out. And we didn't live together from that point. We were separated. It took me such a long time to tell people because I was just about strong enough to keep myself from cracking and from completely melting down. And I couldn't take people's sympathy. I couldn't take people's... I couldn't. I almost couldn't take people's support. That's how I felt at the time. That I had to just keep it inside because only I could deal with it. And I was going. I was going to work. I was walking to work and like doing my job, and then like crying all the way to work and crying all the way back to work from work, and somehow getting my job done. And I was like, how am I keeping this together? I was so afraid of people's judgment and people's sympathy you know only a few years before that I'd had this big white wedding I'd made such a big deal I saw of it I'd done this big parade of my love and my marriage and our commitment to each other and just a few years later I was going to have to tell people that he cheated on me and we were we were breaking up I found that so hard I worried about what people would think I think more than I worried about what was the right thing to do for me And of course, as he started telling people, all I got was support and kindness and absolutely zero judgment in any way, shape or form. I had to lean on people in a way that I'd never leaned on people before, particularly a couple of my friends and my older sisters. I think my sisters took it in turns. They used to call every other night (laughs) and I'd just sob down the phone about how unhappy I was.
I was so afraid of being on my own and being lonely. And I was looking at the future and thinking, well, what do I have to look forward to now? Those six to eight months that I was living on my own and thinking about what I wanted and whether to stay married or file for divorce were definitely the darkest time, actually probably darker than when I, I, I found out about it because I'd still had so much hope then and I was rapidly losing it. And I, I coped by watching Love Island and drinking a lot of gin. I felt like a victim. I felt like this had happened to me and that I was so unlucky. And also it came with a lot of a loss of my self-worth, that I was unlovable, that I was worthless, that no one would ever love me again. That was part of my mourning period that, that couldn't have been skipped. I had to go through that. I had to work through those emotions. We hadn't spoken for a few months and... He'd said to me, the last thing he'd said to me was, I don't want to lose you. I'll wait as long as you need. I'm here. When you're ready, I want to be married to you. I want to rebuild that trust that I've broken over and over again. And God, it was hard. You know, you can see why I, why I hung on. I wanted that. I wanted, I wanted all the things he was saying. At the end of that summer, we went, we met up in Hyde Park. And we went for, I think it was like a three hour walk. And I said to him, I just don't think I could ever trust you again. But I said, for some reason, I can't walk away. I can't let this go. So why don't we keep talking? Let's meet up a few more times and see. And he was like, yes, anything. And I said to him, is there anything else I need to know? Is there anything that you haven't told me that I could find out? And he said, no, nothing. And... After that three hour walk, we went to get a drink and I said, can I check your phone? And I found her name in a message he'd sent to somebody else saying he'd gone for a drink with her a month before. And I said, well, there you go. There's my answer. That's it. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I stood up and I walked away and I I cried for the end of my marriage because that was it. That was the end of it. There was no hope left. There was no going back. When I was going through those six to eight months of, of living on my own and being deep, I call it my deeply miserable phase because I was so unhappy in that time. I was looking on the internet, I was Googling like divorce, like how you get through divorce, how do you deal with, how do you, how do you feel positive after the breakdown of a marriage? And I was seeing all these, you know, there was, there's a lot of information about divorce on the internet and it all talks about you know, how you deal with sharing custody of your children and how you start dating in your 40s and 50s. And there's very little out there about what happens if you get divorced when you're young, before you've done those things, before you've had your children. Like I said, there was no, there was very little divorce in my family. Uh, my friends were, were, were just getting engaged. They were starting to settle down and I was contemplating getting divorced. I don't know, I would have loved to have known that there were other people out there. Legally wise, I had probably the easiest divorce in the history of time because we didn't have kids, we didn't have any money, we didn't have any property. It was just getting rid of that that bit of paper that legally bound us. So it was pretty easy, but you still have to go in and you have to fill out your reasons for divorce. 
I don't know, there was something about it that I found extremely painful and emotional to have to do and to sort of lay out on this legal document all of the things that he'd done to me that had made it impossible for our marriage to, to, to remain. I remember it was a Monday and I think I'd said to myself, I'm not going to go into work today because this filing for divorce is going to break me. It's going to break me. And I'm just going to need to lie in a room and cry and eat ice cream and probably watch some Love Island. I pressed send in the morning on these this divorce papers and I got this, the, you know, this the, you know, email saying you'll you'll hear from us in X amount of days or weeks or whatever it was. And actually, weirdly, I had this revelation that this is what I want. I want to be divorced from this man. It was the first time I thought, no, I want this. I don't want you in my life anymore. I can pinpoint that day as the start of my recovery, the start of me feeling finally like I had some control after, after two years, basically, of, of being completely out of control. I rediscovered hobbies that I hadn't done for a long time. I started partying more and having and spending time with friends and traveling on my own and, and dating. I, I remember date, being terrified. I mean, that was one of the things that kept me in my marriage for so long. So I was like, no one's gonna wanna date me. And what are people gonna think of me having been divorced by the time I'm 30? Like, they're just gonna think I'm, I'm, there must be something wrong with me or like I got married too soon or, you know, they're gonna judge me. And getting back out there, you know, I went out on, on dates and I, I, I met men and they, who didn't find me repulsive and didn't run a mile when I told them I was divorced. I don't believe that, you know, I need to, any validation from men by this. I just think it was part of my process of, of rebuilding, of rebuilding my confidence and rebuilding my self-worth and looking at myself in a different way and rediscovering who I was and what I wanted. And I found out so much about myself that I, I never would have discovered if I'd stayed happily married and my life had gone down this path that I had expected to go down. My life is so much richer and I feel like I have this strength that came out of, of what I had to go through in this kind of battle. It was such a dark time and I had to fight my way out of this dark space. But I came out of it, you know, scarred but stronger and kinder and more compassionate. When I was unhappy, when I was thinking about the future, I wanted people to say, and people did say, to be fair, you know, it gets better and you'll look back on this and you'll feel that it was a it was a part of your story that had to happen and it made you stronger and you will feel great pride in overcoming it. It took me a long time to, to start feeling positive again, but I'm I'm really proud of myself that I did. And now I I don't consider myself fixed or over it or you know completely moved on because I don't think you ever do and you carry the weight of the things that you've been through with you all, all your life and they inform you and they change you as a person there are times where the things that I went through flood back and they and they floor me and they and they still make me cry but I feel so positive now and so hopeful about the future and so much less I feel like the future is so much less fixed and at, at one point that really scared me not knowing about the future and not knowing what was going to happen with my life and where it was going to go and now I don't know what's going to happen and I still have to have to come to terms with that uncertainty sometimes and remember that it's exciting and joyful and and freeing.
You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazaski, and you've been listening to the story of Jemima Forrester. When I spoke to Jemima, she was keen to share her story because she had felt so alone when faced with her own divorce, especially at such a young age. She talked of shame and failure, a challenging choice of words considering actually how hard she had worked to fight for her relationship. She talked about how the joyfully public act of celebrating her love by getting married had to be followed with a devastating but equally public act of getting divorced. When your friends aren't at the same life stage as you, especially one you hadn't planned for or even had a hand in deciding the fate of, that can feel like a lonely place to be. Which is why Jemima's story is such an important one. Because so often through heartbreak and sadness, we feel like we are on our own that no one can ever understand how we feel when actually we're rarely the first people to experience those emotions for the first time. Knowing that someone else has stood in your shoes and survived with the power to tell the tale can be comfort in the most harrowing of times. Like Jemima, we're all likely to experience a breakup that rocks our world at some point in our lives, marriage certificate or not. We are a species drawn to the love of others. In fact, centuries of books and plays and films prove we're in love with the whole narrative and process of finding and holding on to love. But by falling in love, we expose ourselves to a daily risk of rejection and heartbreak. Falling in love is the most beautiful but most dangerous thing we all do. So often we're just our hearts and not our heads to guide us. Jemima's story is evidence that with time, you can find a way to move on, to trust and to heal a broken heart. There will be more dates you will learn to love again. Thank you again to Jemima for sharing her story. If you have a story and the lessons you learned from it that you want to share in a further episode of Nobody Told Me or know someone else whose story we should share, email ntm at stylist.co.uk or leave a comment in the podcast store. For more inspiring stories from women around the world, visit stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.